0: Good morning. You can uh, open up your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians. First, I want to speak a little bit on Advent. Advent is a time the church has historically set aside in the church calendar in the weeks before we celebrate the first coming or or, or the, the birth of the Lord Jesus, or what we call Christmas. Um, the word Advent literally just means coming. As we wait on the second coming, the second advent of the Lord Jesus, the church has found it helpful historically and edifying to focus on some gospel themes in the season of Advent as we, as we wait for the Lord. And maybe you can remember them or you, you've probably seen these, all of these words, these themes on signs around yards, around town. Hope, peace, joy, love. In traditional Christian Advent services, we'll we'll focus on how the birth of Christ brings hope, peace, love, and joy into the world. Now, over the next three weeks, we aren't going to be going through a traditional Advent series, though these themes in the birth account of Jesus, through these themes of the birth account of Jesus and in Scripture. But I do think it would be beneficial for us as a body, to to remember a few of these gospel themes, specifically joy, hope, and peace. And so we will be looking at a few texts in the book of Colossians over the next three weeks that specifically highlight the biblical themes of joy, hope, and peace. And more specifically, the joy, hope, and peace we find only through Christ through the gospel. So look now to Colossians chapter 1, where we find that joy is actually a, a necessary characteristic in the Christian's life. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to be reading Colossians 1, verse 9 through 14. giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. So since we're we're kind of parachuting into the middle of a book, I want to spend a moment to explain a little bit of the context of Paul's letter. It's largely believed that that the occasion Paul was writing this letter to the Colossian church is because he he heard there were were false teachers that were attempting to, to lead the Colossians astray. And the exact nature of the false teaching will become more apparent later in the letter. But for our purposes we need to see that in the, in the preceding verses to our text in verses 3 through 8 Paul is writing a word of a word of thanksgiving for the Colossians perseverance their perseverance in faith, hope and love that is rooted in their acceptance of the gospel especially in the midst of the false teachers. And so in our verses verses 9 through 14, we see Paul writing that he prays for the Colossians without ceasing. And he writes of the, of the content of this prayer. And just personally, I think it is always beneficial to study and to meditate on a divinely inspired prayer written by the Apostle Paul. Because it's fascinating to me to, to see his prayers but it also gives us a good model to shape our prayers after. So maybe you've been in a a season in your Christian life where you you say to yourself, Lord, I just don't know what to pray for. Well, looking at this prayer can be a type of of model for our own prayer lives, which I think will be massively beneficial and edifying to us. Also, if you, if you are in Christ, then I believe the, the prayers that Paul prays for Christians in the New Testament are also applied to you. Paul is praying for the church, and if you are a part of the church, or, or in other words, you're, you're a Christian, then this prayer that we're going to study is immensely practical for your own life. And what we will see regarding our, our Advent theme of joy that we're focusing on is that is that our joyful thanksgiving is actually a necessary component of living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And so it's my hope that we will will see that our joy, our joyful thanksgiving is rooted in what Christ has done for us, which we will see most clearly at at the end of this prayer. So we're going to break down our time into three main sections. Or three headings. The first is the request and purpose of Paul's prayer, and we're going to see that in verses 9 through 10. So the request and purpose of Paul's prayer. Second, we'll see some characteristics of living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Characteristics of living a life that is pleasing to the Lord, and we'll see that in verses 10 through 12. And then finally, we'll see our joy Our joy is rooted in our rescue and redemption in Christ. Our joy is rooted in our rescue and redemption in Christ, which we'll find in verses 12 through 14. So first, the request and purpose of Paul's prayer. Paul begins verse 9 by connecting this sentence to to the previous verses. He's, He's saying that, since he's heard about the faith, and he's, and he's heard about the perseverance of the Colossian Christians, which, which again he detailed in verses 3 through 8, since he's heard of this account, he hasn't stopped praying for them. I think this is pretty characteristic uh, of Paul's fully devotional and, and even sacrificial love for local churches. And what is striking to me is that If you notice in verse 7, I think it's pretty clear that Paul recognizes that that he was not the one to plant the the Colossian church, and yet he still prays unceasingly for this this congregation that is facing these threats from the false teachers. I think that 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 is instructive for us, that we can pray for congregations that, that aren't necessarily our own or that we don't have any physical affiliation with, and we can pray that they like Paul, remain faithful to the gospel. Now what's neat about this is Paul doesn't just just tell us that he's praying for the Colossians. He also tells us the content of his prayer, or more specifically, the request he makes on their behalf to the Lord. So look down in verse 9. He writes, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So, the initial request we see Paul asking is that God would fill the Colossians with the knowledge of the Lord's will. And so, I think we need to ask the question of the text when we get here what exactly does Paul mean by the knowledge of the Lord's will? I think in popular Christian discourse today, the, the common understanding of, of knowing the Lord's will has something to, something to do with knowing the, the future of your life. So you've probably heard someone pray for the Lord's will to become apparent in their life. What, what they're typically asking for with that request is that the Lord would, would show them some direction to go in their life. So you could pray for the, for the Lord's will on what you should do next for work or, or what spouse you should marry or, or what dog you should buy. Um, now, I don't think, in fact, I'm pretty positive that that is not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here with this language. When Paul writes of the will of God, he typically has two things in mind. And theologians call these God's decretive will and his preceptive will. God's God's decretive will is is essentially God's redemptive historical plan. And so growing in the knowledge of God's will in this way would mean growing in our knowledge of God's eternal plan to save a people for himself that, that is revealed to us in the scriptures. God's preceptive will is relating to God's revealed commandments and law. And we see this, I think, pretty clearly in Romans 12, too, when Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the idea is knowing God's will in this way is being able to discern and to, to know God's law and his commandments for his people. So now back to our text. What is the meaning of God's will Paul is intending in Colossians nine. So I take it that he is meaning God's preceptive will, or having a knowledge of God's commandments, of his law. And I think that's clear when we look down in the, in the next verses to see Paul talking about living a life worthy of God and and living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. I think this is clearly talking about knowing and obeying God's commandments. So then what we have here is a prayer from Paul that the church would be filled with the knowledge of God's commandments and and His law. And notice there at the end of verse 9, we see that, that Paul says that his prayer is is for them to be filled with the knowledge of His will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So there's some debate about these terms, but but I take Paul's request that they're, they're being filled with knowledge and wisdom and understanding is largely referring to to the same idea, or to the same thing as being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Or another way to say this is, I don't think this phrase, spiritual wisdom and understanding, is conveying something different than the idea of having knowledge of God's will. But rather, they're, they're, they're like qualities that accompany the, the knowledge. So I agree with Douglas Moo, uh, the commentator, who, who argues this combination of words, um, wisdom and understanding, suggests the ability to to discern the truth and to make good decisions based on the truth. Now, what is important for us to see, I think, is this idea of of spiritual wisdom. So notice that word, spiritual wisdom. I think a better way to understand this is, is this is wisdom that is given directly from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So knowing God's will his, his commandments, and having the ability to make good decisions based on knowing them only comes through the power of the Spirit. We can't, with, without the enabling of the Spirit, be able to, to sufficiently know and discern what is right according to God's will or, or God's law. And if that's true, then we surely can't obey God's commands without the presence of the Spirit. The Colossians, and we need spiritual wisdom, is what Paul is saying. We need the Spirit to work wisdom in us. In verse 10, I think we get a a purpose statement of this request from Paul. He writes, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Paul is saying, I pray that that you may grow in the knowledge of God's will for the purpose of you walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So being full of the knowledge of God's commandments has a purpose, and the purpose is for the purpose of of living a life that is worthy and pleasing to him. So the idea of of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, I think it's pretty prevalent in the Old Testament writings. The idea of walking along a path is what I think Paul is getting at. And the Jewish idea he's pulling from is that walking is is synonymous to to kind of our modern idea of, of lifestyle, or what characterizes your life. We see this pretty clearly in the book of Proverbs where, where two paths that one can walk along are often presented. Think of the times in Proverbs where, there, where there's a path of wisdom and a path of folly that the, that the reader of the Proverbs can go down. The idea is walking down those paths is, a, is equated with what, what characterizes your life or the decisions you make, your, your lifestyle. So Paul, in a similar way, is saying here in Colossians that he's praying this prayer for knowledge of God's will for them so that they will live a life that's characterized, that they would have a lifestyle that is worthy of the Lord and that is pleasing to Him. Living a life that is worthy of the Lord and pleasing to Him. I think those, those two words, worthy and pleasing, I think they're conveying slightly different things. So another way to say to live a life that is worthy of the Lord, or worthy to the Lord, is to say a life that, that is fitting, or a life that's suitable to the Lord. I think what Paul's getting at, is then, is that the, the the ethical lifestyle of the believer must be matching or reflect the character of the Lord Jesus. That is what it means to live worthy of Him or, or suitable to Him. It is to be, to be like Him. It is to be fitting to Him. And then I take it the, the, the purpose of a lifestyle that is worthy of the Lord is so that they, they, they please the Lord fully with their Christ-like conduct, to please Him in every way. And I just want to say up front, friends, this is an extremely high calling, that the characteristics of our life should reflect the very character of Christ. And when that happens, when we do that, When our lives do reflect the character of Christ, it pleases Him. It pleases our Lord when we reflect His ways. And I find this very encouraging, and I hope you do too, because our life as Christians, our obedience to our Master, it ultimately pleases Him. How wonderful a thought is that that, that we are pleasing our Lord. That what we regularly do as Christians, killing sin, serving the hurting, reading his word, coming here to worship him every Sunday, all of that, all of that pleases the Lord. I think that should spur us on to, to, to further please our master by living a life that, that reflects, that's, that's fitting to the Lord. And ultimately, as I'm sure we can all attest to this, is when we are obedient to the Lord, when we are, we are doing His will, obeying His commands, seeking to, to live for Him fully, is when we are most fulfilled. And I think the reason we f- were fulfilled and full of joy is because of this verse. Because our Master, who we live for, is pleased with us. Christians live primarily for the pleasure of their Lord. It leads us to our second point, our second heading. Some characteristics of living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Characteristics of living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. So in the the second half of verse 10, to the beginning of verse 12... Paul gives four participles that that serve as examples or, or ways which I believe are given to show the Colossians four characteristics of a life that is worthy and pleasing to the Lord Jesus. So notice these with me in the text. At the end of verse 10, you see the first one, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge of God. That's the second one. Verse 11, has, has the third, has number three. Being strengthened. And in verse 12, notice, giving thanks to the Father. So bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge of God, being strengthened by God, and giving thanks to God. These are four characteristics of a life. I think what Paul's doing here is he's showing these are four characteristics of a life pleasing to the Lord. So let's just quickly take these in turn. I think Paul means the first two, bearing fruit and and knowledge of God to be tied together, just given the syntax of the sentence. They're, they're tied closely together with that word and, and it's much more easier to see in the original language. Um, but bearing fruit in every good work simply means obeying the commandments of Christ. In, and increasing in the knowledge of God is, is growing in our understanding of God's nature, of, of his character, of his acts. And I think Paul means here a, a saving, a, a covenantal knowing, a covenantal knowledge of the Lord, not just merely intellectual knowledge or, or intellectual facts that we learn about God. So what Paul is doing is... Tying these close together, or by tying these close to, together, is to say that our good works, our, our obedience to the Lord, is linked to our knowing the Lord. So, as we grow in our knowledge of the nature and character and actions of the Lord, we will necessarily grow in our in our bearing fruit and our good works for the Lord. G.K. Beale has a helpful quote on this passage in his commentary. He writes, if one truly knows God, then good works will inevitably follow. These two are inextricably linked. These two characteristics then, growing in our, in our fellowship and knowledge of the Lord in obeying his commands with our, with our good works, are components, they're, they're characteristics of a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Next, if you look down in verse 11, we see another characteristic in and in another participle. Being strengthened, being strengthened. Paul says, with all power, according to his glorious might. I think it's pretty clear the subject here that the his in this phrase is God. So God is the one who is doing the, the strengthening through his power and his glorious might. And friends, this is amazing. Because there's a sense we can get to this point in the prayer and see that Paul desires us for, for us to, to grow in our knowledge of God's commands so that, so that we can live a life that is suitable to the Lord, which, which pleases the Lord, and we can hear all that, and we can become distraught. Because left to our own power, we fail. Time after time, we fail to live a life characterized by obedience to Christ. But in verse 11, Paul writes that it is God who strengthens the believer with all his power and all his might. The implication here is that we can't bear fruit in every good work and grow in our knowledge of the Lord in our own power. We need God's strength. And the amazing thing is, Christian, is that he provides all his power, all his glorious might to strengthen you today, tomorrow, and, and forever. He will provide you the strength to live a life that is pleasing to him. I think that is praiseworthy truth in these verses. Notice here that, that being strengthened, that phrase I'm connecting to, to the previous verse, verse 10... But the strengthening, if you notice, it's grammatically primarily given at the end of verse 11, or for the purpose of. So the strength is given for all endurance and patience. So these terms, endurance and, and patience, are references to, I think, sufferings and trials. So God will provide his supernatural power and strength so that the believer can withstand trials and suffering with endurance, with patience. And enduring trials with with patience and endurance that, that he provides is another characteristic of living a godly life, or living a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And so the reality is then, if you are in Christ today, You can withstand any trial, any pain, losing work, losing loved ones, losing credibility with friends, which are all very difficult things to go through. God will provide the strength necessary to withstand these trials with endurance and patience. So your faith will not fail. Your faith will not fail. And that endurance, that patience you show in your, in your worst time is a characteristic of a life that is fitting to Christ, which pleases Him. It pleases the Lord. So you may have noticed I haven't said anything about joy yet. Um, and I didn't say anything about joy here in the text. And that is because if you look down, you may have a footnote after the phrase giving thanks in your Bible in verse 12. So I believe the footnote is, is actually correct that, and that joy should be paired with, in this verse, with giving thanks and not patience, although you should be joyful in your, your patience. Um, so then the fourth and final characteristic that Paul prays for, the Colossians, is a, a joyful thanksgiving, a joyous, Thanksgiving of the Father. So joy, I'm arguing, is a characteristic that is worthy of the Lord, that is fitting to Christ, which leads to our, our final point, which is our joy, our joy is rooted in our rescue and redemption in Christ. Our joy is rooted in our rescue and redemption in Christ. Verses 12 through 14 serve as, as the ground or the, or the reason why Christian lives should be characterized by joy. And I think it also serves as the transition in the letter from, from Paul's prayer for the Colossians to now declaring just certain theological arguments that he wants to, to, to tell the Colossians. So notice that the reason... For joyful thanksgiving, which again I'm arguing is a is a characteristic of a godly life, according to Paul. But the reason for the thanksgiving we see in verse 12. So read with me in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. In light, So we are to give thanks to the Father for what He has done. And what He has done, Paul says, is qualified believers to share in an inheritance, in the inheritance. This word here in verse 12, qualified, notice that one. It, it plays on a similar word and idea in verse 10 of, of worthy. Remember that word, worthy which we said means fitting or suitable. So qualified here in verse 12 denotes the, the exact same idea. The idea is that Lord, the Lord has caused believers to be worthy or, or suitable, qualified to receive the inheritance of the saints of light. Douglas Moo again writes well. He summarizes Paul's point here. He says... God the Father has himself provided what sinners need to be considered worthy to join the people of God. God the Father has himself provided what sinners need to be be considered worthy to join the people of God. The word inheritance that Paul is using, at least in its in its Old Testament context, which I think Paul is most assuredly pointing towards, which we'll see in a second, but that word inheritance almost always referred to land. Most famously in the, the Old Testament, the inheritance of the Israelites who were, taking, who were taken out of Egypt was the promised land. That was their, their possession or their, their inheritance from the Lord. And G.K. Beale argues in his commentary that what Paul is doing here in verses 12 through 14 is he's purposely, purposefully tr- tying New Covenant believers' salvation with the Exodus account. And I want us to turn to, to Exodus 6 so we can see some of, these, some of these linguistic similarities and thematic similarities. So I'm going to be in Exodus 6. I'm going to be reading verses 6 through 8. And just notice if you see any of the same themes or words. The word says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, or, or literally an inheritance. I am the Lord. So in the Exodus account, the, the Israelites are are referred to not here but elsewhere as, as saints or, or set-apart ones who received a share of the inheritance or possession in the land of Canaan, the promised land. Now what Paul is doing is pointing back to Exodus to show that, that new covenant believers have experienced a similar, but I would argue a much more significant, deliverance. So now our, our, our inheritance in Christ is not just a physical piece of land like the Israelites, but the new heavens and the new earth, the, the kingdom of God itself. So what Paul is saying is that God has provided a way, God has qualified Christians to experience, to share in the eternal inheritance. What, what the promised land was always pointing to, which is the kingdom of God fully consummated. And verses 13 and 14 grounds or is the reason why verse 12 can be true for any of us. Because the question coming off of verse 12 could be, how can God the Father qualify sinners to share in the inheritance of eternal life with Him? How is that possible? And I think Verses 13 and 14 answer that question. God has delivered us. That's that's Christians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's literally transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Again, I see very strong ties here with the Exodus account where in Exodus, the Israelites were, were delivered from physical slavery of the Egyptians and transferred from the kingdom of darkness, which I would, I would say is Egypt, to a nation or kingdom that was governed by God's law, Israel. Do you see the, the connection? Paul is saying God has delivered Christians, I think, in a, in a greater way, from slavery and dominion to sin and Satan, who rules over the kingdom of darkness that is so characteristic of our world. And God has delivered us from this wicked dominion, and he's transferred us to to the greater Israel, to the kingdom of God in Christ, or what Paul calls here the kingdom of his beloved Son. And notice Jesus accomplishes this deliverance through verse 14, where Paul writes that it is in Christ who is the king of this kingdom. It is in Jesus in whom we now have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption carries with it the idea of of purchasing a debt or ransom for a captive. So, God has delivered us from our slavery to sin and our slavery to to the kingdom of darkness through Jesus' redemption of us. And this redemption, friends, was accomplished on our behalf on the cross, where where Christ shed his his innocent blood so that any and all who put their trust and full allegiance in him will have redemption which is the forgiveness of sins. So friends, I hope you see that this is a glorious text and a glorious truth. And Paul is saying, our joy, our joyful thanksgiving is rooted in this reality right here, that God has qualified us to be citizens of his kingdom And he has accomplished it by his own power, by his own grace, by making us citizens of his kingdom, by delivering us from our slavery to sin, and by sending his son to die on our behalf. And do you know what that is called? The gospel. That's the gospel right there. So put simply, our joy is rooted in the gospel. So, this Christmas, this Advent season, as as you reflect on the birth of Christ and you sing joy to the world, and you notice signs all over town that say joy, I want you to remember this joy that should characterize your life in Christ. The joyful thanksgiving that comes from knowing you have been delivered. Not, not by your own works. Not by your own power, but you have been delivered by God through the death of his son to redeem you, to forgive you, and to make you a part of his everlasting eternal kingdom. So Christians, yours is the inheritance of eternal bliss and joy, living in God's kingdom for eternal days. So with Paul in his prayer here, may our lives be characterized as we wait for that kingdom to fully come. May our lives be characterized by by lives that are, are worthy of God, that are pleasing to the Lord Jesus. May we bear fruit in every good work that He's prepared for us beforehand. May we grow in our covenantal fellowship and knowledge of our God. May we be strengthened in our suffering through his power. And may we thank the Father in all joy who saved us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, your word is good. Your word is true. And I pray that we would submit our lives under your word. And I echo the the Apostle Paul's prayer for us, that we would grow in our knowledge of you, in our knowledge of your commandments, of your law, so that we could live lives that are worthy of your son Jesus and that are pleasing to him. And Lord, we recognize we cannot do this in our own strength. But we need your power. And you are free to give it. We thank you for that. And so we ask, Lord, by your power that you give in all might, that you give without reservation, that we would bear fruit, that we would have good works characterize our life and that we would be strengthened for the suffering that we will face with endurance and with patience. And Lord, finally we pray that our lives would be characterized with with joy, with a joyful thanksgiving as we remember your gospel and how you sent your Son to redeem us and to forgive our sins. Thank you. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.